left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Why are we having inflation? I think the simple answer is for most of the drivers that people have talked about and most of the drivers that economists can point to, if we hadn't had the pandemic, we probably wouldn't be seeing the inflation we're seeing right now. That's the bottom line. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm very pleased today to have John Horn with us. He is a professor of practice and economics at the Olin Business School at Washington University in St. Louis. He joins us today to talk about the state of the economy, inflation, and other factors that could affect investors in 2022 and beyond. John, welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks so much, Jim. So the way we like to start out today is just to get a little bit of background on you. If you could kind of tell your your story, your background, how you got to where you are, that would be great. Sure. I got my PhD in economics and then worked as a consultant for close to about 15 years and then transitioned over to teaching at the business school at Washington University in St. Louis. And I've been there for a little over eight years now. I teach microeconomics, macroeconomics, international economics to MBA students exclusively. Awesome. And that's why I wanted you on here to talk about the economy. Obviously, uh, it's the beginning of the year and, and people are really interested in what's going to happen, especially this time of year and, and the way things are right now with the pandemic and inflation and all that. So I'd like to start out, if you can talk to us a little bit about inflation, a little bit of background, where we are currently and maybe where you see us, us going. Inflation, the latest numbers just came out yesterday. And they showed that inflation was the highest it's been since the real inflation crisis we had back in the late 70s, early 80s, when inflation was about almost twice the level it was today. So the last numbers came out, it was 7% year over year increase. Normally, we've been averaging about one and a half, two 2% inflation year over year. So it's a significant increase. And I think most of your listeners have observed that at the grocery store or the gas station. Inflation has gone up for a couple of reasons. I think most economists aren't quite sure yet exactly what the right answer is because it's been 
too recent and we don't have enough data to really estimate. But things like the pandemic, which has caused supply chain crunches and reductions in workforce and inability to actually provide goods and services that are demanded, people who are using the stimulus money to go buy extra things, that has led to some increase in demand, coupled with the reduction in supply that's increased prices. We've seen, especially in, in other countries that have that have shut down production because of COVID. So even if you could actually get the supply chain moving, there's nothing at the beginning that actually produces the good. There are lots of different reasons which have been given for why inflation is going up. And I think for most of them, they are tied to the pandemic. I think that's why a lot of economists still believe that this isn't something systemic that that would continue in the economy unchecked, other than the fact that Inflation is really tricky because once people believe inflation is going to be the norm, then that starts getting baked into wage demands and price increases across the board, and it's hard to undo that. And that's sort of the challenge that the Federal Reserve is facing right now. They've latest estimates, and most people believe they're going to be three to four interest rate increases. Interest rate increases sort of slow down the economy harder to borrow money, harder to invest in new opportunities, harder for people to consume durables like cars and houses and other big purchase investments. And that slowing down the economy reduces the pressure on inflation, but also slows down the economy. And so the trade-off that the Fed is trying to manage is how do we slow inflation without slowing down the economy? And I don't envy them the position they're in because if it really is that I mean, if supply chains sort of unwind themselves by like September, early in fall, at the same time they're raising rates, that could be a problem for the economy. On the other hand, if there's a new variant that comes out every three, four months and that continues to halt the economy, then that could slow the economy down further. Interest rates on top of that, interest rate hikes on top of that would slow the economy down even more, which would be a problem. So why are we having inflation? I think the simple answer is for most of the drivers that people have talked about and most of the drivers that economists can point to, if we hadn't had the pandemic, we probably wouldn't be seeing the inflation we're seeing right now. That's the bottom line. So then if the pandemic does hopefully not go away, maybe, but reduce its effect, then we would expect inflation maybe to also go back to long term normal. Yes, except and unless people believe that the new normal is six to seven percent inflation in which case that gets baked into wage demands, wage expectations. And if that gets baked into wage expectations, then employers have to start raising prices by 6% to accommodate those wage increases, which then people say, well, see, prices are going up by 6%. I need a 6% wage raise. And employers say, all right, I'll give you the raise, but now I got to raise prices by 6%. And that's what's called the wage price spiral. And once that sets in, it's really hard to break unless you essentially cause a recession. That's what the Federal Reserve did back in the early 80s uh, when inflation was, you know, 12, 13, 14%. They essentially forced a recession to reset everyone's mind to know that's not the norm. And what the Fed's trying to balance now is how do we slow down inflation without having that big, massive shock of another recession? I'd like to talk about the expectation thing a little bit because that's hard for me to grasp. I get what you're saying. If everyone's going to their employer and saying, look at all this inflation, I need a higher wage. But Has that from past data, that's like a verified thing that happens that that expectation bakes in the actual inflation and causes it to to an extent? Yes. The simple answer is yes, it has. The more complicated answer, and this is why I still sort of fall on on the side of, I don't think this is going to be the systemic way that the economy will move going forward, 
is that a lot of the places where you see wages going up in the last 12 months or so are jobs where employees said, look, this is just an awful job. And there's so many companies and so many industries who demand workers that I'm going to go somewhere else because I can get a job somewhere else. And in the long run, eventually we're going to settle out to the place where you're going to have to hire people to be wait staff at a restaurant and to stock shelves at the grocery store and those other jobs that people are now leaving because they are other opportunities. You know, I was reading even that, you know, some of the lower end manufacturing, like manufacturing struggling to find people to work. And for a long time, manufacturing was the job to get for the middle class. And it's the long, grueling hours. And they're like, there are better opportunities out there. And the economist side of me says, well, yeah, but eventually those will all sort of balance out. In the past, getting back to your question, a lot of those wage increases were baked into union contracts. So if inflation went up by 5%, we got a four and a half, five 5% raise. Nowadays, so many fewer workers are covered by those types of contracts that I have a hard time seeing workers continually be able to say, I need a 5 6%, 7% wage increase when the market sort of settles out after COVID and we sort of have a, a more steady state of available jobs and people looking for jobs like we had up until 2020. And if you don't have that sort of union contract, if you don't have it baked into the contract where you automatically get that wage increase, unless we have a continually tight labor market, it's going to be hard for workers to have the ability to say, I need that wage or I don't work here. Now, the one thing sort of favoring that, though, is that we are at the very, very, very beginning wave of the baby boomer retirement. And a lot of what we've seen in terms of the reduction in labor force in the last two years is baby boomers saying, all right, we're done. We're just, that's why keep pushing it. If that sort of ramps up and keeps going, then we could have a continuing tight labor market for the next five, 10 years. And you could see that wage price spiral play out. So again, the simple answer is, have we seen it before? Yes. More often in like union contracts, like around the 70s and 80s, when that really spiraled the inflation, I'm a little bit more skeptical that that kind of ability of workers to have the power to raise wages will go forward. Unless, again, we see a huge reduction in are the baby boomers essentially saying, we're not going to have part-time jobs, we're not going to re-engage in the labor force, we're done. And then you could see a labor shortage and that would lead to higher wages. Right, and so it's hard to understand how all this works together, right? That's why your job, I guess, is so difficult. <laughs> but if the Fed tries to raise rates, then that causes the stock market to drop like it did in 2018 when they tried to raise rates, right? Or And let's say you're right and, and the boomers are like, I'm done, and a bunch of them start retiring maybe a little bit earlier than they should have or would wanted to, I guess then you have a stock market decline, then a lot of their wealth is going to erode. Maybe they come back. And how do you analyze all of that? It just seems so complicated to, to figure out and make predictions on. It is. The increase in interest rates will affect the stock market, but it also will affect businesses' decisions about whether to invest in growth and new opportunities. And if they don't, then that means there isn't the demand for workers, which again, sort of balances out the supply and demand for labor. You know, if you look at the number of retirees, you know, in the United States, not many people are sitting on a ton of, you know, investments to retire. Like the percentage of people that would retire and could live off of their investments, 401ks, pensions, et cetera, is not that large. So the other question is at some point, do those retirees come back into labor force and say, yeah, I can work for 10, 15 hours at the grocery store to make a little, you know, enough money to sort of cushion me, that again, sort of eases that pressure on the wages going up because you have lots of people out there willing to work for 10, 15 hours, 20 hours a week doing the jobs. So this is where the challenge comes in. I think, you know, if, if you want to look at it from the Fed's point of view of like, what is the right interest rate increase to go for? 
it's not as simple as, well, if we increase it, we know this is the decrease in inflation. There are lots of other changes that individuals are going to be making and choosing. And I don't want to say it's completely unknown, but there's a lot of balancing that has to go on there. And if you tip the scales a little bit too much in one way, it sort of skews off. And then if you try to rebalance by dumping a huge <laughs> change the other way, now the scales flip back the other way. It's really hard to just balance it enough so it smoothly goes back down to 2% inflation. I think that's the risk is that they, you know, the, the Fed essentially hinted that they're going to have three interest rates, Goldman Sachs and others like it's going to be four. And someone said well, it's going to be at least five. And if they keep going for that and that shuts the economy down too fast, then you're in the position of, all right, well, do we need a stimulus again? Do you drop interest rates? Do you, you know what? And so that back and forth is hard to manage. I think to your point, it's not just one thing. If the pandemic eases and supply chains flush out, that's different from retirees deciding whether they want to retire or not. And managing all those different effects on what's driving inflation right now is challenging. Yeah. And I guess the, you know, if they say there's going to be three or four rate hikes, like they said that in 2018 also, and then then they just stopped, right? Because the consequences were too difficult for them, I guess. So I think it's pretty clear that if they do these rate hikes, even though they've announced them and, and people know they're coming, that that's going to cause some problems with asset prices, right? Because everything, they talk about the everything bubble. I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems like everything's inflated. So if they raise rates and everything comes crashing down, are they going to have the courage of their convictions to say, we got to just go through it? I don't want to make this sound like it's flippant, but that's sort of the genius of saying we're going to have three rate hikes. And the nice thing about it, because the minute they said we're going to have three rate hikes, before Powell even said we think we're going to have three rate hikes, investors had already expected what they thought he was going to say. And if they had thought he was going to say two and he said three, they'd be like, oh, no. If they thought he was going to say six and he said three, like, what's going on? They thought three. He said three, like, OK, that's what we expected. If the first one comes into play and things sort of get worse than expected, they don't have to do the last two. And so the nice thing about sort of forecasting is when you announce what you're going to do, you get to see the reaction of the market before you actually do it. And then you can say, well, it's not the right time for the first one. We're not saying we're not doing three, but now instead of in, you know, say March, we're going to wait until like May or June. So you don't have to say you're lying and making things up. But the nice thing about announcing is that you get to see what the reaction is in the market to see if that's what everyone, again, it gets back to this, what's the expectation of everyone in the economy? If everyone in the economy expects inflation to go back down to 2% next year without the Fed stepping in, then the Fed shouldn't step in. But if everyone expects it to be up at 6 7%, then the Fed needs to step in. And that's what I think they're doing is sort of saying, we want you to know we're not going to let you set those expectations. So we will raise rates. And if you respond really quickly to that first rate hike, then we'll stop because <laughs> we don't need to keep going further. It's interesting how expectations kind of control a lot of this, right? The expectation of a rate hike, the expectation of inflation, and it's cause and effect. And so I imagine that's really difficult to kind of figure out which is which. But I wanted to, to switch here and talk about the supply chain issues. You know, they started because of COVID, right? Are those going to get worked out without if, if we get through COVID or if COVID keeps going, like you said, maybe there's more strains that come out. Is this just going to, how do we get through the supply chain issues? The simple answer is if, if COVID continues to sort of crop up and down here and there all over the world, it's going to be really challenging because the supply chain challenge isn't just one simple answer. It's that, it could be that the sort of beginning of the supply chain manufacturing plant had to shut down for two weeks, but that means that there's a ripple effect throughout the rest of the supply chain that they can't get the parts when they need them because most of the supply chain is set up on a just-in-time. And so if I can't get the parts that I need from you, well, then I'm going to tell 
my other supplier will don't give me your parts. And then they're going to shut down because they don't need to supply, but then for them to ramp back up when I do want it. And so just the production of where stuff is produced is hard to do. And managing that across the globe when you have hotspots pop up in different places is hard. Then dump on top of that, how do we actually get the workers who can actually run the ships and run the trucks and run the port? And again, those ports and trucks and ships are very, you don't want those assets sitting around. So you want to be as productive as possible, very little downtime. Well, you throw a week of you know a COVID outbreak into there and it messes up the whole thing because not only do you have to do the every you know 24 hour, whatever the time period is when you get back up to speed, but now you got to make up for the week you were down and you don't have extra hours in the day to make up for it. And those two on top of each other sort of are compounding issues. And then the question is, you know, a lot of companies are like, well, we need to diversify a supply chain. We need to build excess you know, capacity so that if that happens again, we can move around. And in the short run, that's hard to do because it takes time to build capacity and build up that capability. And in the long run, personally, I just don't see companies sticking to that because it's a cost that's going to drag on profits. And three, four years from now, after COVID, people are going to look at it and say, oh, we managed it. We can get rid of that supply. <laughs> and the next pandemic or the next crisis hits, it's going to hit us, you know, happen again. So diversifying the supply chain and building excess capacity, that's going to take 18, 24 months. It's, it's almost too late to do that, in my opinion. If we get to the point of the summer where it sort of goes from pandemic to endemic and it's just sort of it's a manageable, we can sort of we know the percentage of employees are going to be out at any one time. It's sort of a steady state. Again, I, I think that we can start to work through this, some of those issues, but it's the up and down pops up of hotspots that I think is going to be challenging. Every supply chain hates the unexpected shocks. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. Now, is the expectation game going to count in here as well? Because I remember before Amazon, if I ordered something online or through a catalog and called up and it, I knew it would take a week or two to get here and I had no problem with that, then Amazon shows up and then it's two days and then they went one day and then even hours. But now it's back to a couple days or maybe a week and I've changed my expectations. I'm like, okay, I know it's not going to come immediately. So does that help ease any of these supply chain issues, the, just the expectations? As, as you said, expectations might cause inflation, might cause this other stuff. Does it maybe ease up the uh, supply chain problems? In the short term, but then the same competitive pressures that caused Amazon to go to two days to one day to three hours, four hours, is going to happen again. You know, Someone's going to say, well, I can promise three days instead of the five to seven days that Amazon, and that's going to help me. So I'm gonna, it's the name that tune kind of challenge of I can do it in right. I can do it in two and a half days. I can do it in two days. Like it, that's just going to happen again. You know, one of the other things that that I think is going to be interesting to see play out is as the pandemic sort of transitions to more of an end, endemic condition, for as much as inflation grew in the second half of 2021, the holiday sales were just enormous. It didn't stop consumers from purchasing. And part of what I think was driving that was that we weren't purchasing services. We weren't going to movies. We weren't going on trips. We weren't doing the like the service types of stuff we normally would do. And so instead, we bought products. 
And products you need are, I mean, yes, you need some supply chain to provide the stuff that you do to provide services, but products are really like, to your point, two days, one day, I got to ship, it's got to be produced, it's just in time. And if we sort of shift back away from, okay, well, I got five couches, I don't need a sixth couch. And now I want to go take that trip, or I want to go do something more of a service oriented, I want to go out to eat at a restaurant instead, is that going to put a lot less stress on the supply chain and sort of help it work out. And I think to the extent that we change our expectation, and we want to go back to sort of that more service experience, then that's going to use a lot of pressure on the supply chain. If we don't, or, you know, they'll have different pressures, in different parts of the supply chain. If we don't, we sort of, again, reset our expectations of no, the way to get enjoyment is stuff. Then yeah, there's going to continue to be some pressure because that's not the way things have been going. Now, if we if it switches back to more service based, people are buying more services rather than products. Does that help with the inflation issue as well? It could. Again, it depends on whether you have the employees to provide those services. So if everyone's demanding, I mean, this is part of the, what the airlines were facing is that people wanted to go fly on planes, but they didn't have the flight attendants and the pilots to actually fly the planes because they were sick. Hotels are having a hard time getting people to come. If they come, but they don't have the staff to actually keep them clean or to manage the hotel, they can't actually service the rooms. Restaurants have hiring wait staff and cooks. So if you can find the workers to do those jobs and pay them, and the question then becomes, are workers going to be so disillusioned with those jobs that they never want to go back? Or are they going to say, okay, we will go back? Or will they say, we'll go back, but only if you pay us more? And if you pay more, then that could lead to inflation in those areas. I do think, though, the other one consideration we need to think about with inflation is 6 or 7% inflation systemic to the economy means every year prices are going up by 6 or 7%. People pointed to like the stimulus packages as that's why inflation is going up. Those were essentially one-time shocks to the system. Not every year are we going to have a stimulus of that size. Every year a stimulus of that size, yes, definitely would raise inflation consistently going on. If it's a one-time shock, it's going to restabilize at the new price level. And then going forward, inflation will come back down to what it you know, historically has been. I think that's, again, the other thing we don't know is, will the government continue to try to keep stimulating the economy? Will they back off? A one-time shock will lead to a level reset of prices. And again, that's what we don't really know is, was this 6% or 7% we're seeing sort of a reset of where the prices should be, but then they'll sort of stabilize at that level and grow at 1% or 2% or will they continue to grow at 6 or 7% going forward in the future? And you know, you, you talked about employers not having enough employees. You're not being able to find employees for certain jobs. What's the reason for the employee shortages? I, I understand that they don't want to do this low-paid work anymore or it's dangerous because of the pandemic and all that. But where are they going to make money, right? They have to have some sort of job or some sort of income. So I guess I'm not understanding, you know, we see those help wanted signs everywhere, but where are those people going for employment? So this is one of the oddities that is sort of hard to understand about the labor market is that when the economy starts growing again, so say 10 people lost their jobs because of a, a downturn. When the economy starts growing again, it's not 10 employers saying, I want one worker. It's 100 employers all saying, I want one worker. And so those 10 people have 100 jobs to choose from. And you look at it and say, well, why are those 90 people not filling, those other 90 employers not filling their jobs? It's because there are no workers out there. It's not that there are 1,000 workers sitting around saying, I don't want to work ever again. It's that they have a choice of jobs to go to. Whereas before in the steady state, the number of people losing jobs and number of people gaining jobs was sort of steady. So if I quit, I might not be able to find a job. Now I quit. I, you know, $1,000 bonus, $500 bonus will pay 
for health insurance where we never would have paid it before. Like it, it almost is a, a workers, the sellers market in terms of workers selling their labor. And so it's not that people are necessarily just staying home and not working. There are more because again, we see the labor participation rate going down and that's both men and women. And again, that's partly people retiring early. And then just childcare, you know, we haven't had childcare be able to, to come back to the point where people can go and work a full-time job and go back to that and commit to it because school might shut down or daycare is not available. So it's not the case that people are sitting at home saying, I don't want to work and I don't need to work. It's some people are sitting at home and saying, I can't get the childcare to go back to work. And some people are saying, I'm retiring because I don't want to deal with this anymore. But for the people that do want to go back to work, again, like you said, there are so many options out there. And the way the economy works is if one restaurant wants to grow, that means 12 restaurants want to grow. So they're all fighting for the same small number of workers who want to go back to that industry. And that's happening with manufacturing. That's happening with, you know, you name it across the board. So there's a lot more job openings, not because people are sitting at home, but because there aren't enough workers to fill all those job openings. And you talked a little bit about the boomers how does other demographic changes, how, do that, how does that factor into the employment situation and inflation? You mean like younger cohorts or? Yeah, because I, I get the, the boomers are retiring, but this, I guess they call it Gen Z is coming up and that, that's supposed to be bigger than the boomers. So is that a short term, going to have any short term impact or is that going to be more long term impact when they all become fully employed? I think they're bigger, but they're not as... I haven't looked at the numbers recently. My understanding from looking at it, though, is that the, the Gen Z is not as big as the boomer population. Okay. And they will not be able to replace and support. I mean, that's that's the problem with Social Security and Medicare going forward, is we don't have enough workers coming up to support the workers who are leaving. There are workers always entering the market, but if more... You know, we've gone from a... Before the crisis, it was like a 63% labor force participation rate, and now it's like 61.5%. That's a lot of people. And if that continues to go down further because people retire, there are not enough people coming to labor force to replace all those people who are going to eventually retire. Okay. So what are some other factors that might affect the economy in 2022 or short term beyond that? Other than, you know, we talked a lot about inflation, we've talked a lot about employment, but are there other things that you're looking at, other issues that that could be on the upside that could be good for the economy or things on the downside that could harm the economy, in your opinion? I think the biggest upside, obviously, is, is COVID, sort of getting to a, a slow, steady state where it's, it's not a pandemic anymore, and it doesn't create shocks and surprises. I think that's the biggest upside. The downside risks are that, you know, we've, because of COVID, we've been ignoring all the trade conflicts that had been the talk of the economy for, you know, the two or three years before COVID hit. And a lot of those tariffs are still in place. And there's a lot of the sort of distrust between countries. And I think going forward, there's the potential as countries get out of the pandemic and look back and say, hey, wait a second, how come you didn't help us during the pandemic? Or we need to create a more resilient economy so we can survive the next pandemic is that you could see a lot more nationalizing of economies and that could hurt trade. That's a risk which we're not really focusing on because of the pandemic so much. But going forward, that could be something which rears its head again and could cause challenges for the economy. Okay. Do you think that the Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies will have any effect on the inflation or the economy? I know, you know, the Bitcoiners think that that's going to be deflationary, but it would have to have wide adoption before, you know, it had any effect. So do you factor that in at all? Or do you have any thoughts on crypto? 
I see crypto as an asset, investment asset, and not much else. I'm not a believer in crypto ever really being replacing currency, like cash, dollars, euros, whatever, as means of exchange in a large way. And the reason I say that is even now when someone says, hey, we'll take Bitcoin for this purchase, it's sort of converted into how much Bitcoin will I take for this? Well, how much is Bitcoin trading right now? So how much does that equal in terms of the dollars that I would price it at anyway? We're not thinking of Bitcoin as the currency. And again, because there are hundreds of these different cryptocurrencies out there trying to be the currency. I mean, the dollar is essentially the global currency. For crypto, for any one crypto to be that pervasive in terms of a means of exchange, it has to be the default for how people value stuff. You know, the challenge I have with crypto as that pervasive is you think of the billions of transactions that happen every second in with dollars all around the world. For a blockchain to be able to execute all those transactions seamlessly within the time frame and to, to distribute to all the ledgers of all the billions of people who are on that blockchain instantaneously, you're eventually going to have to get to something where it's a, it's not a we execute the transaction and then the blockchain, like we'll update the blockchain later. Don't worry about it. And once you get to that, then it's not really the magic of the blockchain anymore. It's more like to current ledgers where your transaction gets executed two days later. And if that's the case, then what's the advantage of blockchain to me? So I think blockchain as an investment class, as an asset, sure, you can invest in that just like a stock or a bond or whatever. But I'm really skeptical that ever because of that, that, instantaneous fluidity of currency and cash and all that we use as money, I struggle seeing how that could actually be done technologically. Now, if if the technology improves so much, great. But right now, I just don't see the technology executing at nanoseconds to rewrite the blockchain every single time. Right. No, that, that's an interesting take on it because I've had heard a lot of opinions, but that, that hasn't been one that, that I've heard a lot about. And I know that they're working on other layers on top of Bitcoin or crypto that will, you know, help that. But if the technology is not there, you're right. People, if people are still waiting and it, and it doesn't do what money needs to do, then it's certainly not going to be adopted and, and won't have much of an effect other than an investable asset. So that, that makes sense to me. I'd like to see if we can kind of sum up some of what we've talked about. And by we, I mean, I mean you. From a perspective of a real estate investor, as, as you know, our group is mostly passively investing in real estate syndications. Multifamily is a big one, but other assets as well, self-storage, mobile homes. How do you think inflation, the asset bubble, unemployment, how does that all affect real estate investors? And if you have any ideas for what people should be thinking about as they're continuing to invest, because it doesn't make sense to just sit on your cash, right? So we're, we still want to invest, but do you have any, without giving investment advice and maybe looking in your crystal ball, what do you say to people that are still uh, investing in real estate? So not being a real estate expert, investment expert, I would say from how I would look at it, I would look at the interest rates, that the interest rates are going to drive a lot of the valuation of real estate. If the Fed does follow through with three or four interest rate increases, that is going to have a relatively serious impact on the housing market and the real estate market. It's one of the more immediate places where the Fed's change in interest rate uh, drives through. You know, businesses aren't investing in new plants and new equipment every single day. But every single day, people are taking out mortgage loans and buying and selling houses and properties. 
And so when the Fed raises interest rates, that gets baked into the price and the valuation of the asset that the house, the real estate asset. And so for me, if I were thinking about, you know, owning or holding real estate, I'd want to really pay attention to the to the interest rates and think about that. And again, if I think that if you think that inflation is going to be so, so systemically baked in that the Fed's going to have to raise interest rates, you know, five, six, seven percent, that's going to have a really big impact on real estate that you buy today. If you think that this is something that the Fed has to increase the rates, you know, one, one and a half, you know, percent in the next year and a half to sort of just hint to people, we're not going to let this get out of hand, then there may not be as much of an impact. So to me, if I were really trying to think about real estate investment, I'd really want to pay attention to what the Fed is saying and what other people are saying about the expectation of interest rates. Because to me, that's that's where I would focus on the valuation of the assets that I'm holding. Okay. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. This has been great. I really appreciate you being on the show. The last question I always ask, I don't know if you're a podcast listener or not. I've heard you on another show. But do you have a, a great podcast that you listen to that you'd like to um, recommend to our listeners? I'm ashamed to say I'm not a huge podcast listener. I've sort of scattered around and listened here or there to things. I'm more of a, you know, whatever catches my eye or my ear at that time is what I listen to. So I unfortunately don't have a system that really like I go to this one every single time. For me, I think is whatever catches your your attention. To me, it's all about learning and, and getting new information. And so if it's something that, that is, is going to exciting and interesting to you. And I think for me, the listening to a podcast, just to say you listen to a podcast, if it's not something that interests you, you're going to be focusing and reading something else or doing and not really listen to what the person's <laughs> talking about. So that makes sense to me. I hope no one today is doing that, but <laughs> absolutely say, not. Yeah. If it's something you're interested in, you will pay attention to listen. That's where you'll actually learn something. Makes total sense to me. All right. Well, thank you very much, John, for being on the show. It's fantastic. A ton of information. We really appreciate it. Hopefully, we'll get you on again once we uh, know what the Fed is doing and we can talk about what they've done. That's great, Jim. Thank you so much for having me today. Excellent. We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community. At Ashcroft, they focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential through their value add funds. They are proud to announce their second fund, the Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2, is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind, to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with, acquiring quality multifamily assets and offering value-add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. Well, that was super interesting talking to John. Just having an economist on the show, I think, is, is super helpful. It's really hard for anybody, including an economist, to predict what's going to happen. But if you take a look at what has happened or where we are now and you can kind of try to analyze it, then a lot of what he was saying is the pandemic is causing a lot of these issues. There's the supply chain issue. There's reduction in workforce and the inflation. And Hopefully, once we get through the pandemic and we get it to where it's just an endemic thing and doesn't affect us every day, hopefully a lot of these issues will come back to somewhat normal. So he doesn't necessarily think inflation is systemic 
It's part of what has happened over the last couple of years, and hopefully we will work through it with possibly the help of the Fed. The one thing that I really wanted to ask him and was interested about is how consumer expectations can cause something to happen. It didn't really make sense to me. Explained it that, you know, if everybody is expecting inflation to happen, then they're going to be doing things that actually cause inflation to happen more than it otherwise would. So it's really interesting that expectations have such an effect on the economy. So that was super interesting. And I like the advice that he gave for real estate investors like us. And it's not anything earth shattering, but it's pay attention to interest rates because the more interest rate hikes the Fed does, the more that will affect the real estate market. And likely if they just do a few and a couple percentage points, it's not going to change things significantly because it's not a huge change from where we are. It puts us back to maybe normal or even maybe under normal from where we've always been. So that seems to make sense to me. It's if the Fed keeps raising rates, like he said, five to six percent over time, then that certainly will have some effects and we're going to have to reevaluate at that time. So I'm really pleased to have John on the show. We will definitely get him back after we see what the Fed is doing and, and see how the economy changes and see how we're getting through this pandemic. And he'll have some great input for us again in the future. So that's it for us today. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.